0: Great to be, to be together somewhat, and uh, despite the uh, flashes of P- PTSD I'm having here, remembering when we used to do this every week, uh, it's I'm it's delighted to the Lord that we have the the setup that that we can do this instead of just canceling church in the ice storm. Uh, we can can meet together. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders, and it is january 2022 now so i am officially back on the elder board i was looking forward to uh, telling you all about that in person but zoom will have to do Uh, so i am officially back as one of the elders though i have a time of transition uh, getting back up to speed with the rest of the team but it is good to to be here with you all today and to uh, finish up our sermon series on the Song of Solomon, also uh, if for, for those of you that I haven't seen up until now, or at least not without a mask, I also want to just acknowledge the glorious facial hair. just address the elephant in the zoom here, uh, where i have I'm under a, a modified Nazarite vow where no razor can touch my face or head until after the production of the play that I'm in in two weekends. So that's why the the unusual facial hair. But with that said, we conclude our sermon series this morning on the Song of Solomon, which if you have any trouble finding that, it is on page 529 of the Church Bible. Hopefully you have one of those at home with you. Uh, but we're in chapter eight, verse five of the song of Solomon, where this book's final poem addresses one of the most important aspects of God honoring romantic love. And that is the clear distinction between true love and cheap lust. The the distinction between true love and cheap lust. Up till now, we've followed the poetic case study of the man and the woman in this poem, whose love serves as both an example to imitate and as a vivid picture of God's relationship with his people. We've seen the passionate intimacy of this man and this woman toward one another. We've witnessed their mutual possession of one another in the marriage union. And we've heard their admonition not to stir up such love until the time is right. But after all that, when you and I float back down from the fantasy of this idealized paradise, will we be able to look real life in the eyes and recognize true love for what it is? In other words, will we be able to distinguish between true love as created and authorized by God and cheap lust? Our ability to live as this book would have us live demands that we be able to tell the difference between true love and cheap lust so we can embrace the first and repudiate the second. Now, when our present evil age asks the question, What is love? It has a very hard time coming up with anything more helpful than, Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. So as children of the living God, as the people of the creator of heaven and earth, As worshipers of the one who invented romantic love, will we have anything better to offer in answer to the question, what is true love? You can see in your outlines that was posted in the chat. You could also download it off our website. uh, That true love recognizes its own power. It esteems the virtue of virginity. It repudiates cheap lust, and finally, it anticipates something even better. Let me pray for our time together in God's word as we dig in. Our Father in heaven, please help us, Lord, uh, though we are uh, not together in person as as many of us, or as we all wish we could be, uh, Lord, we ask that you would be with us As we study your word, uh, send your spirit, give us ears to hear, and Lord, give us eyes to see what you have taught, what you have spoken about the nature of true love. Help us to recognize it for what it is, that we might see it in you, that which you have had for us from before the creation of the world. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first answer to the question of what is true love is that it recognizes its own power. Here are verses five through seven of Song of Solomon chapter eight. Who is that coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death, jealousy as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Now, the first thing this passage tells us about true love is that it recognizes its own power. That power is stated explicitly in the middle of verse 6, for love is strong as death. Let me explain how the poem elaborates on such strength. In verse 5, the poem opens with the exact same question that was given to us in chapter 3, verse 6. Who is that coming up from the wilderness? It's word for word, the same question in the Hebrew, even though it's translated slightly differently in the ESV in 3.6. But it's the same question. Who is that coming up from the wilderness? And whereas chapter 3 showed us a wedding, chapter 8 now shows us a wife. And actually, chapter 3 redirected our attention toward the bed of Solomon which was much used and abused to quench his insatiable lust. But now in chapter eight, the answer to the question, who is that coming up from the wilderness? We see this sweet and lovely woman awakening her man for the time of love. And as she does so, she invokes his own mother who labored to give birth to him at the end of the verse the idea in this verse is that true love has a real power of awakening you see love makes the daytime seem a little more bright and the apples seem a little more red and juicy but part of love's power comes from the approval of the community Over generations, that's why she's invoking his mother who was in labor. What what this woman and this man are doing right here under the apple tree is not something they have to be ashamed of or keep secret. Even her mother-in-law's perspective is not a scary or a threatening one, but it's an approving perspective. True love, in other words, has the power to shape communities over generations for good or for ill there is a reason that the basic building block of human society is not the corporation or the school or even the government no the basic building block of any society is the family True love has the power to shape and define family units, to unite those from separate families into new families, into new reproductive units. And this is incredibly powerful in the shape of human events. By way of application here, let me quote from commentator Douglas Sean O'Donnell on this power of community with love. He says, God's wisdom is far removed from today's world where the widespread attitude is that parents are the last to be consulted in the matters of love and that what consenting adults do in the privacy of their own bedrooms is nobody's business. God's wisdom is far removed from two people making a private agreement. Hey, let's move in together and give it a try which is separated from the family's approval, the church's blessing, and even state law. Do you want to see a solid community crumble? There is an easy way to do it. Just make the only rule about love that love is no bigger than us two, that sexuality is a personal, private affair. That attitude and action upon that attitude is killing our country and every country and community where it is king. End quote. In short, cheap lust is all about just me, or maybe even just the two of us. But true love, by contrast, is all about not only the two of us, but also our parents. Our church, our community, our extended families, our people, and our nations. Moving on, in verse 6, she wants him to place her on his heart and on his arm like a seal. A seal was the thing that they used to mark official documents. You have a piece of parchment. You drip some melted wax on it, and then you stamp your sigil in that wax with your seal to show that this document is from you or it belongs to you. What she's saying here, set me as a seal, is that she wants to be his personally, legally, permanently, and publicly. She wants it to be the case that he has no other woman but her in his heart. And the world can see that as though it were tattooed on his bicep. And, you know, she smiles when he flexes. Why does she want this? Because, the end of verse 6, love is strong as death jealousy is fierce as the grave in other words she knows that love has tremendous power and she says that the only thing that rivals the power of love is the power of death and when this poem was written death had never lost a single battle against a human soul death is pretty powerful And love is just as powerful. Perhaps you've heard it said, you've heard that it was said today that the only two things in life can be certain, which are death and taxes, right? Well, this poem would add a third certainty, which is that there will always be people who do ridiculous things because of love. That you can be certain of that because love is as strong as death. There will always be people who do ridiculous things. Even me. When I first started getting interested in Erin, I planted secret agents of mine near her sister, who and I wanted those agents to report to me whenever they found out that Erin was going to go to visit her sister because then I could make sure I went to visit my friends in the same town on those same weekends. And my informants and I even had secret code words and everything so nobody would know what I was really up to. So, yes, you could be certain that people will do ridiculous things because of love. The shyest man you've ever met might propose to his girlfriend in front of a 100,000 spectators in Beaver Stadium. Another one might jump off a high dive just to impress a girl. There are some young ladies I've heard who might not naturally appreciate superhero films or war films, at at least until they can be sure to get a seat next to whatever nice young man has caught their fancy. So you see, love has tremendous power, and people will do ridiculous things because of it. Love is like Thanos the Titan with six stones in his gauntlet declaring, I am inevitable! Verse 7 tells us that floods cannot drown love. And it cannot be bought with money, even though deplorable fools have tried. And such power can provoke people either toward greatness or toward stupidity. Seriously, just think of some of the stupid things you've been willing to do for love. And think of the ways love has motivated you to be a better man or woman than you were before. And if you really cannot think of anything yourself, just notice what you have seen love do to others. Where the most boring people suddenly become way more interesting and engaged than you realized. They could be. And the plain people appear more lovely. And those who were previously unnoticed suddenly become magnetic and energetic thanks to love's inevitable power. But here's the thing. Cheap lust refuses to recognize this power. When what motivates me is not true love but cheap lust. I actually believe that I can engage in certain activities without having them shape me or my community and exert its power. I think, I start to think that I can do dark things in secret and nobody will notice. I think that a few clicks... A few pictures, a few touches, or a brief embrace won't hurt anything. And this passage says, yeah, right. That's like blowing a 60-foot hole in the Hoover Dam and hoping nobody will notice what happens next. True love recognizes its own power. And it delights in such power. When employed appropriately. But let's move on to the next crazy idea in this text, which is that true love esteems the virtue of virginity. Virginity is such an old-fashioned word, isn't it? I don't hear it that much anymore. It's an idea that tends to be mocked in our culture as though being a virgin is about the most immature and worthless thing a person could be. That's what the world usually thinks and says. And just like usual, the world has it exactly backwards. Look at verses 8 to 10. We have a little sister and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door... We will enclose her with boards of cedar. I was a wall, she says, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Now, in this brief stanza, we see the community of faith rallying around the young folks to honor and protect them in light of love's power to either delight or destroy. And they are praising, they are esteeming the virtue of virginity. That community of faith is pictured here in the young woman's brothers. So her brothers speak up and we're taken back in time to when she was a preteen. In verse 8 they say she has no breasts. What they're saying is just that she hasn't yet gone through puberty. She hasn't yet flowered into full womanhood. And so as they, at that point, while she is this young girl, as they look ahead to her future, they ask, what will they do? What will we do on the day she is spoken for? That is, on the day when young men come knocking on her door asking her hand in marriage. Or maybe even coming to just ask her out to dinner and a movie. What will we do on that day? And in verse 9, they consider two options. Will she be a wall? Or will she be a door? By a wall, they mean that she is like a locked garden. She doesn't flirt with men or lead them on. She doesn't let them in and out of her heart. She doesn't offer her body willing to anyone willingly for either their enjoyment or hers. She doesn't let any young fool sweet talk her into pairing off, ignoring everyone else and making him the center of her world. Instead, she is strong and courageous. She is secure in her identity before the Lord. She serves the entire community and not only those who appear to her to be potential mates. She is a wall. And so when they say, but if she is a door, they mean the opposite. They mean, by a door, they mean she flirts with men and she leads them on. She lets them in and out of her heart. She is willfully, sexually active. She moves from one relationship to the next or from one fling to the next. She listens to the sweet talkers who make her feel beautiful and she opens the door to let them have their way with her. And look at the brother's plan. They say that if she is a wall, they will build on her a battlement of silver. In other words, because she was a wall, She has made herself mighty and secure like a castle fortress. And the battlement of the fortress is the defensive position at the top of the wall. And usually it's the spot from which the archers would shoot at the enemy, shoot down at them. And you would never use silver to construct a battlement. Because silver is too soft to be of any defensive use against steel or iron weaponry. You would only use silver on your battlement if if all you want to do is make it look prettier. Because the castle is already secure enough on its own. So if she acts like a wall toward men, refusing to awaken love before the right time, then the community of faith comes along and they decorate her. They praise her. They beautify her and they eagerly commend her to godly suitors in search of a virtuous woman. But if she is a door, they say at the end of verse 9, they will board her up with cedar. In other words, if she won't keep that door closed, if she won't keep the men out, then we'll have to do what we can to help. And so when good and godly men come along, we'll have to warn them away from her. When they ask for the, those, when those suitors come and ask for the parent's blessing, The parents may have to request more time to give their daughter an opportunity to mature further in faith. Now, please understand that these warnings here apply to both men and women. There are not different standards in the Bible as though women must be walls, but it's okay for men to be doors. No, 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 that's not what this is saying. I just want to remind you that the chief audience for this book is the young women of Jerusalem. That's why the focus of this text is on them. But the warnings apply just as much if you flip the sexes. So in verse 10, she has now grown and she speaks for herself, seeking to awaken love with the man that she is loving the man that she wants to marry, and she declares that she has been a wall. I was a wall. She says, my breasts were like towers. In other words, she has had a consistently strong defensive stance toward her many potential suitors. She hasn't let them get too close at the wrong time. Until she found the right man at the right time, at which point he views her, the end of verse 10, as one who finds peace. You see, she is a fortress and he knows that she is a fortress, but she is not the kind of fortress that he must lay siege to. He doesn't need to find ways to outmaneuver her and manipulate her into his bed. No, she is the sort of fortress where he will find refuge and security himself. He wants her fortress to become his manor so he can settle down and start a family with her. I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. And I love how the poet puts those words of verse 10 into the girl's mouth and not the brother's mouth. It's not that they observe and declare her to be a wall. No, what actually happens is she boasts in it. She sees her virginity as something to be proud of. I was a wall. Her virginity is something she will not give up quickly And easily, she is holding out for the right man at the right time, and he is doing the same for her. How does this apply, friends? True love esteems the virtue of virginity. But by contrast, cheap lust ridicules virginity and seeks to be rid of it as quickly as possible. And that's what the world does all around us. Now, some of you may really need to take this to heart, especially the children and the teenagers. Despite what our culture tells you, it is worth it for you to save your heart and your body for marriage to the right person at the right time. Please don't jump into sexual activity just because everyone else is doing it or because it makes you feel pleasure, or because it makes you feel loved or attractive or desirable. It's worth it to be patient and to esteem this precious virtue of virginity. But I imagine that there might be some others of you here with us today who might be squirming or struggling a bit because you've already lost your virginity in a way you wish you could take back. Maybe it happened against your will from violence or abuse, or maybe it happened very much according to your will as you made choices that perhaps failed to recognize the power of love we discussed earlier. Either way, you need to know that this does not forever wreck god's plans for your love life yes it may have ongoing consequences that you need help to deal with and that's why for those of you who are able protect that protect that and guard it until the right time it's totally worth it but despite whatever consequences you may have And you've experienced from your past, Jesus came from heaven to earth to bring the dead to life, to heal the sick, to feed the spiritually poor. He came to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim the age of God's favor. Listen to the word picture the book of Revelation uses for all of those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John sees a vision of the multitude who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. And he says in Revelation fourteen four, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. And he's not speaking literally as though you have to be a physical virgin to qualify for this. He's using a word picture. He's saying this is what it means to be redeemed by Christ. It means that whatever your past, the blood of Jesus so thoroughly and effectively covers you that as you bear the Father's name on his holy mountain, you are a virgin and you are blameless. And virginity and blamelessness are virtues that we esteem as members of Christ's community. And because God's people esteem such virtues, this means that true love also repudiates cheap lust. Point number three. It repudiates cheap lust. Look at verses 11 and 12. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon he let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. Now, in these two verses, we have the most direct repudiation of Solomon's kind of love found anywhere in the book. Solomon's approach to love was all about cheap lust. He wanted to find all the prettiest girls in the kingdom and the surrounding kingdoms and he took hundreds and hundreds of them into his harem. And here, in no uncertain terms, the young woman of the poem repudiates such cheap lust. The vineyard Here, as in the rest of this book, represents a person's body. And in verse 11, Solomon's vineyard was constantly being rented out to others. And she says his vineyard was at Baal Hamon, which is not a real place. It's a made up name that means, excuse me, it means something like husband of a multitude. You see, as long as Solomon got the pleasure he sought, he would add to his vineyard more and more keepers of the vineyard. But in verse 12, the woman says, Not me! My vineyard is my own, and I'm not sharing it with anyone except the one I want. You, O Solomon, you can have your thousand pieces of silver. You can have your thousand wives. You can have your harem. You can have your way of doing romance. You can have your cheap lust. And I will do it God's way instead. How does this apply? Friends, there comes a time for all of us. In fact, there come many times for all of us when we must say no to the world's way of cheap lust. True love is not naive about the ways of the world, but it denies and repudiates those ways in favor of the kind of true love God commands. This is why we have preached through this book of the Song of Solomon, we need to know what we are facing and we need to have hope that it's worth it to repudiate what we see every day in the world around us. And the way we nurture that hope that it's worth it, we nurture that hope by waiting for something even better than what the world can offer. This is why true love finally anticipates something even better the book now ends in quite an unexpected way verses 13 and 14 O oh, you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice let me hear it make haste my beloved and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices These final two verses show us that true love anticipates something even better than anything else the world can offer. In fact, it offers something even better than what we have now. Let me show you how this does it. Because these two verses have nothing we haven't seen before. There's a playful flirtation between this woman and her man. This is the appropriate kind of flirtation at the right time with the right person. And he wants to hear her voice in verse 13, just like he said back in chapter 2. And in verse 14, she invites him to frolic upon her spice-laden mountains, as she has done before. But the thing that stands out here is that this is one of the only sections of the book that does not end with the passion of marital intimacy, you see this, this last section of the book and the whole book itself ends simply with the playfulness, the innuendo, and the invitation to hear and enjoy one another. And this leaves us with much anticipation for what comes next. But when the curtain closes on this section, it, for, Pretty much the first time in the book, it, it doesn't. the curtain doesn't close in the privacy of the bedroom. No, the curtain closes here on a park bench. Or maybe they're sitting in a booth at Red Lobster. Or maybe the two of them are on a Ferris wheel all the way at the top. I don't know. The point is that we see them simply enjoying being together with seductive winks and more than a little suggestion of something more to come later in the evening. But that consummation of their love has not yet come. They anticipate something even better is on the way. And after all they've been through in this book, it's an amazing way to end. Because, friends, in our world, marriage and passion tend to remain isolated from one another as though we must choose either marriage or passion and to choose one is to lose the other you see in in the films marriages are boring and affairs are thrilling in the romance novels reality disappoints and fantasy fulfills in the winds of culture spontaneous youthfulness youthful urges are life and committed partnership is irrelevant but they have it all wrong for every one of us the best is yet to come in at least two realms first is the the literal realm of human romance i feel so sorry for all those students up on campus who hook up with someone new every weekend I mean, they have to deal with all of the shyness and the awkwardness and the pain and the stress and the aftermath of mating every time with someone new. So many of them have so little idea of how much better it gets when you get to practice over and over again with the same partner. I once heard the report of a saintly senior citizen Who claimed that the problem with hookup culture, one problem, not the only problem, but one problem with hookup culture is that what he said is that people today have no idea how to find satisfaction. He said that you'll never know what it feels like to be truly satisfied sexually until you and your beloved have had at least 40 years to perfect your abilities to love and satisfy one another. The opportunity is there for it to just get better and better with each passing year. Because true love constantly anticipates something even better in the relationship to come than what we have now. But even this is only a shadow. It's a picture of the second realm in which the best is yet to come. And that is the realm of the eternal kingdom of God and of his christ because these closing verses of the song of solomon are surprisingly similar to the closing verses of the book of revelation in both places we have hints and suggestions and innuendos of something better yet to come in both places These ending verses come after a book that previously described the consummation of what was to come. Yet in both books, the author concludes the book by leaving us hanging, wondering when and how that which is best will yet come. Here are the last two verses of Revelation. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you are a woman or a man, married or unmarried, old or young, if you have set your hope in Jesus Christ, remember that your best is yet to come. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So what is true love? True love recognizes its own power. It esteems the virtue of virginity. It repudiates cheap lust, and it anticipates something even better. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we are so grateful to you for this picture you have given us of true love and lord you are the inventor of true love and love is the way you describe yourself to us because you loved the world you sent your son and you have loved us with an eternal love even before the ages began and so lord please help us to embrace your love to receive it that we might love one another with this same kind of love And Lord, help us to recognize the difference between true love and cheap lust, that we might not make shipwreck of our lives, but that we would become more and more like the Lord Jesus and be prepared for your eternal kingdom. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.